Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore. Uh, Kyle's got the day off today because we have some guests on the show. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Subscribe to the podcast. You all know that. Uh, the important stuff is, of course, sharing the podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, we love to see that people are referencing the podcast and linking to it in forums and uh, just wherever. We really appreciate that. And thanks, everybody, for uh, you know coming to say hi at all the races. Uh, Kyle and I really appreciate that and all the guests that we've had on who have come and said that uh, people have come up and said hi to them. So uh, we really appreciate that. Thank you, everybody. So um, we have, uh, you know, of course, no ads, so we are ad-free. So if you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can do so at empiricalcycling.com slash donate. We've got some show notes up on the website. We will have a couple for today. And of course, if you have any coaching or consultation inquiries, because of course, don't forget, we are a cycling coaching company. That is our thing. Uh, you can reach out to me at empiricalcycling at gmail.com. We do consultations as well. And of course, don't forget to follow along on Instagram at empiricalcycling.com. Uh, for weekend AMAs up in the stories and all sorts of uh, fun stuff in between, uh, doing some memes and the regular stuff and uh, putting up some training files and stuff like that. Uh, I think people have been enjoying those. So if you'd like to, uh, the last one was uh, how to how to recovery ride and how not to recovery ride. Um, so that's up there too. And uh, we're probably not going to have a podcast up next week. That is the week of uh, Elite Road Nats in the US and uh, also in Canada. So I apologize for that. I have a bunch of riders there. And um, uh, so we'll probably not have a podcast there. Uh, and then I'm moving. So uh, I will be having a, a really fun time <laughs> um, for the week after next. Uh, but um, yeah, then we'll be back on our regular schedule. So uh, thank you everybody for your patience and check up on Instagram. I'll probably do an extra AMA uh, at Elite Nats whenever I get a free moment. Um, so uh, check that out. And so on today's podcast, we have Angelo Gingerelli and we have RJ Borgers, who are a couple of strength and conditioning coaches who also do endurance events. And their primary thing is strength and conditioning coaching. And so they uh, reached out to me about a book they wrote called Finish Strong Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes. And they said, do you want to check out the book? And you know, if you think it's okay, uh, maybe we'll come on the podcast and talk about it. So I read the book. And I thought uh, the book was really good in parts, and I thought the book uh, had a couple spots where I had some questions, and so uh, they came on the podcast, and we had a really good and interesting discussion, so I hope everybody listening... you know, here's the discussion. And, um, you know, if you want to get the book, we will have a link up on Amazon, uh, up to the Amazon um, uh, place where you can buy it. So, um yeah, if you want that, that's great. And also, I, uh, I I apologize again. The audio quality on this interview is uh, really bad compared to what you are used to. Um, I uh, am going to clean it up as best I can, but I, I'm just going to apologize ahead of time. There is some obvious noise gating. There's some background hissing. And uh, my microphone decided to not work that day for some reason. So I don't know what the deal is with that. But um, if you will excuse all of those things, uh, I hope it doesn't sound too badly. Uh, if you're, you know, on a bike ride and you've got the, you know, conduction headphones and whatnot, it might not sound amazing. So sorry about that. Um, but uh, I thought it was a really cool discussion. I really appreciate, uh, RJ and Angelo for coming out to the podcast and, um, I'll see you on the other side of the interview. Um, thanks for sending me the book, by the way. Um, so I read it cover to cover as promised. I have, uh, several pages of notes, uh, that I took while I was reading. Um, I think we have some uh, some points of agreement. I think we have some points of disagreement. And I think that's going to make interesting discussion because uh, I like to just give people tools and then let them make their own decisions. So um, 
So, you know, I'm sure you guys kind of got that sense through the podcast before, right? For sure. And, you know, we actually appreciate that because it's it's a pretty boring podcast if uh if everyone is in in if everyone is in agreement and just going yep you're right you're right i think <laughs> i think it's uh, a little healthier when there's a little bit of a discussion and a little bit of back and forth i think there's more yeah, to I agree. more to get out of it for the audience for sure yeah so uh so the book kind of went into it but um why don't you guys tell me about your background in strength training and also endurance training uh, like, you know, do you guys coach endurance athletes or just strength or like, I know you guys both do endurance events. Uh, so where do you all come from? Go ahead, Ange. Okay. I'll, I'll go first. Well, my background, I've been strength and conditioning coach for about 20 years, uh, 17 of which are at Seton Hall in New Jersey, right? So I'm, I work with all the sports in the department. Endurance wise, men's women's cross country and our distance swimmers are the ones that are the most analogous to what we wrote the book about, right? Um, and I kind of, I've been in that profession for a long time. 10 years ago, I ran a marathon and just got super into the, the, the marathon world, right? Right about that time, I met RJ. He was in the marathon triathlon world. We started training together and we're lifting together, running together. And he's way better at the running and swimming than I am. But we just kind of worked out together and kind of had this idea that his background in athletic training, my background in strength and conditioning, and we had a lot of people talking to us like, you know, how do I insert this lifting into my, my workout and my daily routine? So we got together and put this in the, in the book yeah, we're going to talk about so today. For me, I, I've always been doing some level of uh, strength training since since graduating college. It's just one of those things that it's an outlet that makes me feel good, um, get some endorphin release, uh, a little stress relief, uh, something that I think a lot of people can actually use. And then um, I started – you know, doing some 5Ks and things like that, really simple stuff um, in the early 2000s, and then finally stepped up to the triathlon world in about 2009. And then from there, everything just took off. So I was, you know, I literally probably strength trained five days a week, um, still pretty much to this to this day. I, about the only thing that I change in that is probably substitute a... Uh, uh, a yoga session in for one of those days. Um, as I've gotten older, mobility has been a little bit more of an issue. Um, as our as our body changes and hormones change, and and our and our tissues become a little bit more rigid. Um, but yeah, so we noticed that we were doing things a little bit different. We never miss a race. Uh, we always show up to the start line, and we've got friends that. You know, they have these overuse chronic conditions, and it's just so disappointing to see when they're not making it to the, to the start line. And they're these talented individuals. They've put in all this time training, and then meanwhile, they're not they're not able to go and actually do the race. So uh, we said, look, let's let's write a book about this. And you know, this is an area that we think has been you know keeping us successful uh, in what we do. Um, and so we just kind of wanted to share it with everybody else. Um, so what inspired you to write a whole book? Cause I, you know, I think everybody who is, you know, who eventually becomes some kind of an expert in anything, uh, thinks I should write a book. And then you look at what's involved in writing a book and then you go, fuck that. Why would I <laughs> spend all that time? <laughs> um, so what made you guys, uh, decide to, you know, actually, um, I don't know, just roll up your sleeves and get to work on this thing. Cause I'm sure it took years. 
Uh, speaking of everybody should write a book, I saw a stat recently that said 80% of the population thinks they can write a book, 1% actually produce a book. Um, that seems to pass the eyeball test, right? That seems about right. I think the biggest thing that, that pushed us to actually pull the trigger and start the publication process was the amount of people in our lives that were asking us these kind of questions, right? We, we knew kind of early on that we had the, the knowledge, like you said, we're both 20 years deep in, in physical culture, if you will, and training for different kind of events. But right around 2016, 17, we were both, we were running together, lifting together, and I'd be like, Three people they ask me about should I lift weights if I'm a runner? Or I, I get emails all the time. How do you train your swimmers or your cross country kids? So we kind of realized there was a market out there for it of people that just didn't know how to implement this kind of training, and then that kind of forced us down the rabbit hole of pitching this to publishers and saying like, look, we're two guys that are a little bit rare that we strength train and we compete endurance athlete wise, and we have kind of the backgrounds and credentials behind us of experience plus multiple degrees. So we might be the guys that can help a lot of people by putting information out there in a way that's number one researched and proven right through a couple different ways we do that in the first half of the book and the back half is just what's worked for us it's kind of like you know we realize not everybody's the same obviously training the same. I, really, I train predominantly college athletes if you're 45 we're going to attack that a little bit different than if you're 18 correct um, but we're going to kind of look at our experience, come out of what we learned in the classroom in the academic setting, try to put out a book that obviously is not going to appeal to everybody, but I really believe if you're already in the endurance sport training world and you want to start implementing resistance training, this book is a good first and step I, in that process. I got to tell you, when Angelo pitched me on the idea, he said, let's write a book. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I was like, I really don't want to do this. This is this is going to be a lot of work. Um, you know, having having written and submitted, uh, you know, plenty of uh, research manuscripts, I just know the time and effort to pull those together and then the rewrites. And I was just like, oh, this is going to be this is going to be a major undertaking. Um, fortunately, at the time, I probably had. I was in a good spot in terms of the number of other extra commitments that I had, so it so it all kind of worked out. Um, I I was excited about the idea, but I was just like, oh man, this time commitment is going to be brutal, um, and <laughs> <Yeah>. and it is. <laughs> um. All right. So uh, I think also what I what I want to ask you guys is, what do you think makes the book unique? Because there are other, um, you know, e even beyond books. Just there's lots of media around strength training for endurance athletes. So besides your experience, because um, you know I think a lot of coaches uh, like myself um, do a lot of endurance stuff and also lift weights. And so, um, so what's what's your perspective that makes the book unique and, and more useful for like? Because my audience is I would say 90% competitive cyclists who race road races and criteriums. So, um, so what uh, what do you bring to the table for them? I think one of the first things we did that, and there's a lot of great resources out there. We are by no means the only book or Instagram account or YouTube channel out there on this kind of thing. There are a lot of them are really good. One thing we did from my particular point of view is we took the year and broke it down into four distinct seasons, right? So in my world where I'm training college athletes, there's very clearly an in-season, a pre-season, an off-season, a summer break, whatever it might be. A lot of adult endurance athletes don't look at the year that way, right? They just look at, I'm going to train these couple months for this race, then I'm going to take some time off, do it again. So we kind of broke the year down to four distinct segments, and we kind of worked out different ways to work resistance training into each 
season of the year, if you will, right? Because one thing we see all the time, anecdotally, we see people start to start quote unquote training, and then we start running, lifting, mobility, or stretching all at the same time, and then they get incredibly sore, incredibly disgruntled, and a lot of times the lifting is the first thing they cut out, right? So we kind of put a plan together where you can introduce these new exercises during your off season, and then give you ways to taper, cut back, plug and play different times of the year, where we keep resistance training, but do it in a way that's smart and get you ready for your big events every year, and not super fatigued and, and, and worn out and tired all the time. But the example I always give is, as a strength coach, I love squatting. I think a barbell back squat's a great exercise. The day before you run a triathlon is a great exercise? Probably not. So let's look at the year and big picture and give you some ways yeah, to make this work I, I gotta, for you. I got to agree with Angelo that I, I, the thing, when we looked at other books and other resources that are out there, the main thing that we thought the failures that we've seen in other areas was the failure to, to periodize um, uh, with your season. And it, it's, it's actually hilarious exactly what Angelo was mentioning there about a lot of people will start in the off season, they'll, they'll do their, their lifting, and then all of a sudden they ramp up their endurance sport training, and then that falls by the wayside. I'm giving a presentation to a group in uh, in Colorado tomorrow, and the uh, the individual that I'm start that I'm uh, communicating with, he's like, yeah. So these are all triathletes. They all. He's like, you got to tell them what they should be doing right now while they're in season. He's like, they all they all lift out of season, but then they don't do it now. And I'm just like, oh God, that's the problem, you know? And so it, it just kind of gives, it validates the reason why we felt so strongly of putting that in there in the book and spending a good amount of time on it. Um, okay. Well, I, well, let me start digging in right there. Um, so what do you think is the advantage of lifting in season uh, for triathletes and competitive cyclists and whoever? And also, why do you think it gets cut out? Why is it the first thing to go? I think it gets, I think it gets cut out for because of time. It's it's that it's that it's that time commitment that that we always hear as being why it's the first thing to go. And you know, most people sit there and say, well, you know, if I if I don't have you know enough uh, miles on the bike, um, you know, prior to my next you know, training prior to my next event, then clearly that's going to be the, the first thing to go because that's going to affect my uh, cardiorespiratory fitness. Good. I get it. Makes sense. The thing that I think people are failing to see is the fact that the strength training is actually what's going to uh, almost be the glue to holding you into your correct um, body postures and body mechanics. Um, if you've ever seen someone in a uh, in a in a crit a road race, uh, you know a fondo something like that, they look awesome in the beginning. They they're riding that bike. They are they are locked in. They're you're not seeing a whole lot of uh, um, hip. Uh, or pelvis drop and, uh, and and pelvis lift, and then they might be climbing in a hill towards the end when they're really fatigued, and then a lot of the body mechanics fall apart. And when the body mechanics start to fall apart, you become less powerful. You become um, you know less. Uh, uh, you, you're you're not going to perform uh, optimally. Let's let's put it that way. Yeah. So so in other words, you're saying that there's a lot more um, a kinetic leak. That's probably a great way to uh, to put it. In that you're you're giving away energy that could be there, right? Because of your poor mechanics, um, and therefore becoming less uh, less effective. 
So what do you think is the mechanism where strength training helps that? Because, you know, I, I coach both strength and endurance. And so I see something like that. And my first thought is this person needs better endurance and this person probably needs to eat more. Um, and then once we solve those things, I don't see people falling apart at the end of long races. So how do you think the, the strength training um, affects that when, you know, and what, what percentage might be strength training, what percentage might be uh, you know, just endurance and bonking uh, related? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question, and I think nutrition definitely plays a, plays a factor into it. Right, same most nerds out there need to eat more. I think we all agree that's a sweeping generalization. That's true for a lot of us, right? The second thing, as far as in, in addressing mechanics, totally agree. That's a big percentage of people being inefficient on the bike, on the run, on the swim, whatever we're talking about. But I think to some extent, we need to look at does being stronger help correct those mechanics. Right, and that's where we could show somebody how to run and make them look perfect the first mile. How they look on mile twenty, or mile thirty, mile forty, and I think developing that baseline strength with it in mind. How do we make this transfer onto the bike in this case, right? So, for example, just being a big heavy back squatter and heavy deadlifter might not transfer as much as developing some strength in the lower extremity, developing some core strength and good posture in the shoulder girdle, and then going and coaching them up when they're on the bike. Try to hold this position for as long as you can, right? So kind of give them a good idea of what looks right. And now, all right, you were doing good the first five miles. Now really think about staying in that position the next five miles. And now, theoretically, with this newly improved strength and mobility, they should be able to hold that good technique and good form you think there's longer a, into the race. Because I know that there's a lot more, um, a lot more research on, um, on strength training having a, a positive immediate impact on running economy. Um, and not so much on in cyclists that I see. And also when I coach cyclists, a lot of them, they, you know, we pretty much only, we're plugging leaks. Like if somebody's like shoulders get sore, okay, we'll address that. Like stuff like that. But, um, you know, for, for a lot of folks, like if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know? So what do you think is the real difference between like different sports even because like, like running and cycling and all of that? Yeah. The, the demand, the demand on a runner is, is way different than what it is on a cyclist because essentially every time that they're running they're becoming a projectile and then they're having to absorb all of those forces whereas the cyclist is staying on the uh on the bike so it's not an impact sport so i think you've got you know a major difference right there um and so i think that it it really becomes important for those that end up having to run. So if they're a triathlete and they're and they're having to get ready for their run after they've been cycling for as long as they have, if they're fatigued and, and they and then they start going out on the run and then they start promoting a poor mechanic, you're going to start getting poor alignment uh, and that becomes really problematic. So the, I, I'm glad that you asked that question because, it, I mean, the, by sport, it's totally different. And I think that's part of the thing why, as you're mentioning, um, you know, for cyclists, um, people that are just a dedicated cyclist, I don't know it's if it's as needed. Um, the one thing that I will say, um, and I know that you had mentioned that sometimes you'll see that uh, um, when you look at the research articles, whether or not um, a uh, resistance training program actually will help your performance. I would say I feel like it's about a 50-50 mix uh, on those studies. Most of those studies are coming out of uh, Scandinavia, and I always start to wonder, like, what made each of these cohorts that they were following, um, you know, different and why did they get those particular results? Um, I, I'm a big fan of, is there a 
systematic review or a meta-analysis that supports something, and I haven't seen anything like that uh, in terms of someone synthesizing everything that's been written regarding uh, the pros or cons of, of strength training uh, for cyclists. Yeah, but if you want to look at like high-intensity training meta-reviews, like you know, we got our pick of the litter if we really want to. Right. Um, okay. So, uh, I also want to, I want to keep digging into this a little bit more because, um, cause I think one of the things I see with, uh, cause I usually recommend people cut out strength training, uh, as they get deeper into their season, especially when it becomes, uh, the difference between, uh, like it, it's fatigue management is a big one. Um, and also I think, um, I think a lot of people, when they you know hit their you know squat PR before the season and whatnot, and then they get in season and they go, oh my god, I don't want to get rid of all my strength uh, gains. Um, so you know, what do you think is going on there with uh, you know people's motivation to keep lifting or to either cut it out? If I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one, um, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, with your demographic of folks that you're that you're training, mostly folks that are road racing, crits, cyclocross, um, you know, that's going to be that's a different that's a different event that you're prepping for uh, compared to someone that is you know um, doing these long fondos, uh, doing some kind of um, you know Ironman triathlon. I think the events themselves uh, are a little bit different, and I think the intensity that you ride those events is certainly going to be different, right? So, if I'm riding more at you know a uh, a tempo pace throughout, you know, staying at a nice tempo pace for an entire uh, Ironman triathlon, that's going to be totally different than what your folks are doing for um, for for a crit or for a uh, a cyclocross race. And so, and I think your training is going to be vastly different. So you're going to do a lot more VO2 max um, workouts. And I think that's part of the reason why you're saying that you're having to manage some of the, a lot more of the fatigue. Um, you know, you're hitting, you're hitting a lot higher intensities than I would say that uh, some of the other folks that might be training. Um, and, and so I agree with you that if you're, you know, you might need to manage some of the uh, some of the uh, fatigue factor if you're actually having um, folks that are actually, you know, uh, exercising at such a high intensity for their training. And one thing we kind of touched on in the taper section of the book, we talked periodization a little bit before, is that in general, we big, big generalization. We recommend if your mileage or your distance or yardage is tapering by, let's say, 20%, we taper the weight room by 20% too, right? So instead of cutting down to zero, instead of doing sets of 10, maybe we're doing sets of eight. Instead of 100 pounds, we're lifting 80 pounds, right? Same idea, taper the weight room the way we do our endurance work. But I think, and we kind of alluded this in the book a little bit, that's a good place to start, right? When we're talking about super high-end, elite athletes, hundreds of miles on a bike, we realize there might be a time where that needs to change. But one thing for beginners, even intermediate athletes, we kind of realize that if we're doing the right things in the weight room, we're training the right way, and working on our mobility, and we're feeling good doing that, right, does it make sense to cut that out completely, do your big crazy, you know, not crazy, but very high-intensity time of the year training-wise, and then have to get your body completely back into moving properly and feeling good again when it's over? We think we can find kind of a middle ground of, yes, taper the resistance training sessions, but keep moving and keeping your body balanced and mobile the way you've been doing it the entire training period and come back to, you know, 
day two, three days after the big, big race and be ready to go again and start the next training yeah, period. That's one of the things that I well. think did not come across to me uh, as strongly as I, I was expecting it to reading the book was, you know, well, I was like the whole time I was like, who's the target audience? Because, you know, because it seems like it's a lot focused on people who, uh, you know, who are super time crunched, like doing their triathlons and fondos and whatnot. Uh, and not quite so much competitive cyclists, but then you're like, if you're doing a criterion, this is going to work. So I was like, that's curious. I got to ask these guys about this. Um, you know, cause, um, you know, cause, cause, cause your answers here are much more, you know, what I would have expected to read in the book. And I, I, I might've just missed it. Um, so I don't know. That's, uh, that's just, just me. <laughs> Probably poor reading comprehension. No, those are good questions, man. We appreciate you yeah, reading the book that close to you. Thank you. We're up for constructive criticism on it. <laughs> the, it, it. Was it perfect? No, it's not. You know, it's not perfect. But um, I, you know, I think I think we're getting our point across uh, to most individuals, and and um, you know, hopefully, we hit hit the mark for for more people than uh, than than less people. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, all right. Because uh, as I went through the book, um, let me check my notes here real quick. Um, I think I think that one of the first things that I noticed is that um, it, it just in terms of language, um, you uh, you talk about being strong quite frequently, um, and uh, you you never come out right and say it, uh, which is wise, obviously, because they're not the same, but. Um, the implication as I read it, um, the, like the subtext was that being strong in the weight room equates to having good endurance on the bike. And I think we just kind of touched on that in terms of like the biomechanics and kinetic leak and all of that stuff. Um, but you know, was that, is that kind of intentional? Was that like some, an experiential thing? Is that like, you guys notice this a lot when you're coaching athletes? I, I think as far as using the terminology we use, um, we were between us and the editors over at Bloomberg that we worked with. The idea was to make it as as digestible to the biggest part of the population as possible, right? So we can on a show like this, where you do a great job of breaking down the science of training, we can debate the definition of strong and explain it to your listeners a little better than we can a book that's available in Barnes and Noble. Well, why don't we, and kind of for why don't we get into right? it? Let's, so let's, uh, let's talk strong. about the different types of strong there are. So, okay. um, so give me why don't you guys give me your definitions on strong in the weight room and strong in the bike and how they overlap and how they're different. Or do yeah, you want sure. to take it first? I mean, you're a little better on the bike than me. Strong on the bike. Obviously, you know, people are going to talk FTP, right? So, you know, what's your FTP? Uh, how well are you able to, to, uh, to um, you know, hit your, hit your training zones um, and, and, and ride against other folks? And then, you know, strong in the weight room is, yeah, I mean, maybe you can push and maybe you have a, a, good, a good back squat where, you know, 300-pound back squat, something like that. I don't know that that's necessarily going to translate. Um, I will say though that if you are if you are doing your strength training routinely, then a it's going to keep your body you know healthy and hopefully in a in a proper alignment. So that should actually keep you out on the bike uh, competing in your sport. Um, will it will it translate to more power to the pedal? I don't know. Um, and and. And I think we'd be crazy to, to say that we, you know, to say with some kind of absolute um, conviction that it does. We don't know. Um, 
we think that it does, um, and 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 I think that's fine. Um, well, go a little deeper in that. So physiologically, what um, what limits strength and what limits, like let's say, FTP uh, to you guys? And so th- now we then we can like look at okay, how do how do these overlap? Angie, you want to talk about limiters for strength? Yeah, I think that the biggest limiting factor in strength as it pertains to training for sports, right? There's powerlifters and Olympic lifters that are just they're strong men and women. You can't deny that, right? Their numbers on the platform are undeniably strong, right? Most of them cannot go out and ride a bike for 75 miles. To keep, obviously, we all know that, right? So then the idea is trying to find the balance between strength and mobility, muscular endurance, and keeping our body in alignment and moving properly. So the example I was giving the weight room is, if you're, like RJ said, a good squatter, could squat a 300-pound barbell, now your next decision is, do I become a 350-pound squatter, or do I take my time and effort and energy and put it in a 300-pound squatter that has great hip, knee, and ankle mobility, great posture, great soft tissue functionality throughout my body. I think that's kind of where we are with, with the level of person we wrote the book for. Most of our, our readers are, I don't, I don't want to offend anyone, but let's say weaker in the weight room than guys that guys that lift a lot, right? So the idea is can we get a baseline strength of, to get good at a couple of exercises, pick and choose the other auxiliary exercises you want to use for your sport or your discipline, and then really crush any home with that mobility work, that posture work, that core work, and then make that translate onto the bike. And that's, you know, one, one example that came to mind to me about defining strength. A lot of people think if you have a six-pack, when you take your shirt off, you have a strong core, right? But at the same point, if you take your shirt off and you're riding a bike and your body's rotating from side to side and your shoulder girl's not strong enough to move the handlebars in the right direction, you're weak on the bike, you know, you look strong, right? So I think we got to come up with a, a, a kind of a happy ground in the middle of let's get maybe good at squats, good at a bench press, good at push-ups and pull-ups, but maybe not crush that to the point where it's taken away from our endurance workouts. So to make it kind of, kind of in layman's terms, let's get strong enough to be good and efficient on the bike and then take our time and our, our effort and our energy to using that strength to having great technique, great mobility, great flexibility that while really on the bike. This book actually is the, the core stuff that you talk about, the mobility stuff, um, the injury prevention stuff. Uh, I thought all that was fantastic. And I was, I was reading it and I was like, I, I think I can get into this. Yeah. Uh, then I started like reading the other section. And I was like, I have some questions. <laughs> so and, and that's fine. If if I can sure, continue on about you know limiting factors for uh, FTP, limiting factors for for strength, genetics. Um, I think Angelo kind of touched on that, and I think um, there's going to be a genetic limitation for both. And then pra- the amount of, that you practice, right? So practice makes perfect. Time in the saddle. Time in the saddle is going to make you a stronger rider. We know that, right? So um, you, you do your you do your workouts. You um, uh, you hit your pacing goals. Um, you're you're going to you know get stronger on the bike. You're gonna you're gonna bump your FTP. Um, you start to uh, train more frequently in the weight room. You lift more frequently in the weight room. Obviously, you're going to um, wake up any of those uh, neural pathways, right? So uh, you might start to uh, wake up some new motor units that you haven't been that haven't been recruited previously. Uh, now you're going to start to recruit other muscle fibers um, to to help you get stronger. So you know, with both of these, a lot of it, everything comes down to how much time are you spending doing it. And then, you know, we all are going to, you know, have that governor, which ends up being our, our, uh, our genetic component. 
Um, do you think that, um, you know, do you, so actually this, this brings me to something else and then we'll circle back around. Cause, uh, cause one of the things that I, I noticed in the very back of the book is, um, your loading schemes, uh, for like, um, cyclist peak mileage template. Um, you know, and I, I like, I'm reading this. I'm like, okay, so you start with, uh, soft tissue, uh, mobility stuff. Um, foundation superset, superset two, lower body, upper body. I'm like, yeah, this is great, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the loading scheme, um, I don't see anything on the loading scheme and you really didn't touch on it in the book. Like I really didn't feel like that was elucidated very well. Um, and so, so why don't you take this time for, cause if somebody does get this book and read it, they're going to be like, oh, how much do I lift? Like, cause it's like, you know, three sets of 10, four sets of eight and stuff like that. Like, so, um, so what's, um, you know, what should be people doing in, in the weight room? And then we'll kind of circle back around to this thing. We kind of look at it as if you're, if you're new to strength training, you're an intermediate level strength training, if we're doing a set of 10, pick a weight where reps 8, 9, and 10 are pretty challenging, right? If you're blowing through the sets and are ready to go immediately when you're done, there's not enough resistance to really get any kind of strength or hypertrophy effect on from that set. If it's, if you're getting crushed to rep 7 and you're just grinding out reps 8 and 9 and you spot it for rep number 10, that's obviously too heavy for what we're trying to accomplish with this population, right? So we kind of left it a little bit open-ended to make the end of every set challenging, right? And when you're getting 10 reps cleanly, then progress to the next, next weight on the bar of the machine the kettlebell, whatever you're using, right? We also left it open enough to realize during certain times of the year, you have to manipulate your intensity enough for what you're trying to accomplish, right? So if it's my off season and I got a, I got a heavy you know, goblet squat that fills with heavy dumbbells and I'm from sore the next day, not a big deal. If I'm in the middle of my, my building a base and running a ton of miles for me and my next morning I'm going on a 15 mile run, which it was, might be a lot for me, maybe I got to go a little bit lighter on the dumbbell or goblet squats and not crush my quads as much because I want to be sore the next day, right? So you did realize we're not try- we're trying to give you a recipe, but maybe not a formula where every single number and intensity is spelled out for you. Because in reality, it's really hard to do that for hopefully a lot of people reading the book, and we don't know all of them personally. Whereas if I was working with a client individually, I would I might not get a one rep max for an endurance person, but I would estimate some maxes, start b- bouncing some of the big exercises off percentage of that one rep max, and have suggestions every day of where to start your sets intensity wise. Um, you know, we're trying with a book going out to this many people. It's yeah, really hard a lot to, of the, to do like, that. Loading recommendations and like you know auto regulation kind of stuff was in the text of the book, and then because I think a lot of people are just going to like flip right to the back with the loading with the schemes and go, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> this, is, mm-hmm. this is like you know it's like it's like giving a list of the ingredients but not how much uh, for a recipe. Um, and I was like, okay. oh, so this is actually going to make people go read this book. And I, I actually, if, if that was an, an intentional decision, I think it was an interesting one. It's it, something that I might've done myself if I were writing a book. Well, I think, I think it's really hard though, because we, it's hard to actually pick what the loading scheme is going to be given that we don't know where everyone's starting. I mean, could, could we sit there and say, Hey, you know, we want everybody to do a, do a 10 repetition max and then, and then use the, uh, use the chart and then figure out what, you know, what your one RM is and then, you know, go from there. I think it would have been a bit much if we were to try to have people doing that. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard. And, you know, maybe did, did we take that as, um, did we take that for granted? I don't know. I mean, Ange, what else? Yeah, I mean, I was I was hoping for like an RPE scheme or at least, you know, like like this type this time of year you can go to an eight or a nine. This time of year you should only go to a five or a six. 
it's it's interesting that you that you talk about that because I'm I'm actually on a dissertation committee right now where the uh, the gentleman is working on um, uh, he's working with power lifters and he's doing velocity based uh, training so um, and then versus RPE and so he's doing a comparison between between both of those schemes as to you know how should we de- you know determine you know rep range and things like that based off of those so um, we tried to keep it relatively simple. Um, I think if you notice in in the uh, in the schemes, you know you'd see that we we knock down the the rep ranges in the um, uh, in the taper phase clearly because we want somebody to just be doing you know a little bit lighter weight and and less and less reps. That way they're getting a little bit less volume. Yeah, um, yeah. Of course, if somebody's maintaining the same RPE. Then you know it's going to be like oh even heavier cool <laughs> so uh, I I, uh, I I unfortunately could see it backfiring because I'm sure you guys know a lot of the same types of athletes I know where you you write something like this and you try to impart all the nuance that you can and then somebody goes all right what's the best way I can meathead my way through this with the heaviest <laughs> weights possible because more gains are more better right yeah that's always always a concern yeah. Oh, sorry, Angelo. It looked like you had a thought right there. Um, okay, cool. Um, no, I'm fine. You guys right. are great. Uh, so, lifting in season. Let's talk about uh, some overlap of things. Like, uh, like, how do you recommend people add strength training to their week or to their day if they're going to like do a double? Yeah. So, go ahead. Okay. So we. we- no, we just kind of realized early on that endurance athletes don't have too much fatigue and too little time, right? So we try to keep the workouts about 40, 45 minutes max, recommending at least two times a week, as many as three and four, depending on what their schedule works out, out to, right? Um, I think in a perfect world, people will be able to, if they're doing two a days, be able to do their endurance work earlier in the morning, come back and do the gym, mobility stuff later in the afternoon, right? Realize that's not possible for just about everybody. I think in general, and that's my opinion as a strength and conditioning coach, you got to take whatever is the most important thing you're doing that day and do it first when your body's fresh, your central nervous system is activated, you're not pre-fatigued from anything else, right? So if the overwhelming majority of people reading this book during most of their year, we're going to say prioritize your endurance training, which in this case is cycling, right? And then find ways to plug in these 40-minute workouts around that. Now, if you know you're struggling with your strength and you need to get stronger and you have some things you want to correct on your body, maybe in your off-season you prioritize the strength training, right, and work in your endurance training or maybe doing some cross-training or something about it off the beaten path for you and do that in your second session or after you're lifting every day. But for most of our readers and most of the time of their year, we're going to recommend, obviously, focus on your on your cycling and plug the, the endurance the workouts around that. consideration in your programming recommendations? What do you mean a concurrent training effect? It just oh, um, like the Hickson study from uh, you know the first time that anybody had somebody had uh, athletes do both endurance and strength training, uh, and then after seven weeks, the strength training uh, started to taper off. Like it actually, people actually started to lose after, after concurrently gaining. Um, and so after a couple weeks, basically what happens is um, the molecular pathways of between endurance and strength training start to interfere in favor of endurance training. Um, so is that something that you, um, you had consideration with, with, uh, the recommendations? I got to tell you, we did not, you know, I mean, this is, this is why we come and do these things. It, you, we're learning. <laughs> uh, 
I I was unfamiliar with the uh, with the Hickson study, so I, I I appreciate you know what you're what you're mentioning there. I look one of the things that people do talk about is you've got an anaer- you've got an anaerobic sport and the person's training for an aerobic sport, so somehow they're going to kind of like interfere with one another, and is it going to wipe out the effect that you're looking f- the that you're looking for? Um, and you know th- it's one of those. It's it's a catch twenty two because you're sitting there going, you know, if I don't do the strength training, uh, you know, what's that going to do for my overall body alignment? And again, I think this is probably going to be a little bit more important for our folks that are you know triathletes that are having to then go run after they're getting off the bike. And as I said, you know, maybe not as important for for a cyclist while they're while they're in season. Um, but yeah, it, it's totally a catch twenty two of you know, what, what do you do? Uh, and, and are you actually, you know, having a harmful effect on your other part of the training? So I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. Um, there's, there's scientific studies, as you pointed out. Um, but again, that's, that's one study. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, t- tens or hundreds of other studies have yeah. pretty much found the same thing yeah. later. Uh, and elucidating the molecular mechanisms is something that, um, you know, continues to this day. Uh, but, you know, we do know enough at this point to at least be able to make some recommendations. And your recommendation of doing endurance first actually tracks pretty well. Um, and, um, but I do find sometimes when I have people doing heavy strength training, even if they're like, you know, even professional athletes who have all day to, you know, eat and recover and sleep and all that. Um, you know, sometimes that we'll find that their, uh, their endurance improvements just aren't happening anymore, especially if they're super keen to get into the weight room and, you know, not lose their, you know, not lose the strength in season. But it's like, at some point it's like, you know, we should have seen some more movement in your aerobic metrics right now when we're not. Um, so we might have to think about seriously cutting down the weights or just cutting it out entirely. Uh, but you know, that's an intensity thing uh, that we kind of talked about before. Right? Yeah. And, and what you're kind of even bringing up there yeah, is yeah, listening cool. to your athlete. And one thing that we kind of always say is, you know, coaching is an art and a science, right? So there's a science that says it should be one way and you're expecting that you're going to be getting this effect on, on this athlete. And then you're just not seeing it. You need to, you need to, you know, listen to them, adjust it and, and then, you know, go from there. So, um, that's just part of, you know, good coaching. Yeah. Cause I, I, um, yeah. Cause when I, cause I, I don't think I saw that in the book or I didn't see it as explicitly as I thought I would. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, these, I think I really am getting a handle on their target audience here as you, uh, as you've mentioned. Um, so what would you, what would you recommend for like serious endurance cyclists? Because that's, that's pretty much who listens to this podcast. So, uh, what would your recommendation be in terms of auto-regulation with, uh, you know, weights like intensity? Like if you're trying to do an FTP workout later in the week and you can't hit your numbers and you're suspecting it's your, it's the weight stuff, how would you recommend people adjust, um, either the the timing of the weight training and the endurance training, or even the loading schemes. Yeah, I mean, or did you take again? One? I'm I'm going to have somebody do any of their uh, aerobic training in the morning. I think that's I, I think that should be the the first priority of the day, um, and then I don't have it in front of me, but. Anytime that you're doing that, you're you know working out and in and, and hitting like 
you know, zone four, zone five at, at higher efforts, we know that there's going to be a longer period that it's going to take for a recovery. So, and I believe it's, uh, I want to say it's like a two day, I can't, I can't think of exactly what it is, but I, I believe that it's usually about two days to recover after, uh, after a zone five. So I think you're really going to need to take into consideration how hard the work is uh, and know what your recovery sh- should be. So perhaps I'm not going to be, if, if I did that, you know, super hard, um, you know, FT, FTP workout, I might be not lifting for another couple days, um, or I might actually have at least two days prior to that, so that I'm actually um, not. I will be recovered um, and be ready mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. Have you found that the the endurance training also affects you in the gym when you're, especially if you're trying to lift a little heavier? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just just general overall fatigue. If you go in a, in a gym at you know seven o'clock in the morning, fully rested, fully hydrated, fully recovered from whatever you did the day before, you're gonna lift heavier weights than if you're coming off a you know a twenty five mile bike ride over hills and that kind of stuff, dealing with the elements. That even if it was the day before, you're gonna recover somewhat overnight if you took care of business and slept enough, ate enough, drank enough. Um, but I think to some extent, it's almost unavoidable that eventually, if you're training properly, your endurance training is going to, I don't want to say negatively affect what you're doing in the weight room, but it will have an effect, right? So then you got to kind of not let ego take over and say, I always have to lift at least these weights when some days these weights might not be what your body's able to handle that day, right? And I think as endurance athletes, as long as you keep the, the focus on your endurance training and realize the weight room is to supplement that, not take away from it, and keep in mind, what's important you can do that properly you know what i mean and that's a little bit more the art than the science of it and one thing we always you know the national selling dish association is big on percentages right you get a one rep max you lift on a percentage of that the problem with that with endurance athletes and really all athletes, if you want to keep it 100 real is let's say on the day you test your we use a back squat as an example you squat 100 pounds that's all you had that day that's 100 percent effort one rep max you get 100 pound squat max right well then, come in the next week and you didn't sleep, you're dehydrated, you're up late for whatever reason and you went on a long run the day before. Well now, 80 pounds might be 100% of your max for what you have in the tank that day, right? On the other token, if we're training and getting stronger a couple weeks later, 100 pounds might only really be 80% of your max. So as much as I think having some idea of your maxes and a vague idea of where you should you know, plug your weights in the lift, I think for this population, going by something like rate of perceived exertion or kind of just feel, for lack of a scientific term, might be a better option because we're acknowledging what you're doing on the bike is more important than what you're doing in the weight room, but you got to be smart and not let your ego take over of, I need to always put 45s on the bar. I always need at least a 50-pound kettlebell because that could be a recipe for disaster that's, that's really depending on the time because I think what you said before about you know it being supplemental is super important that I think not a lot of folks you know don't appreciate um, that I do think you guys emphasize properly in the book that you know your main sport is like is not being a power lifter it's not it's not getting in there to you know do whatever um, uh, okay so I want to read one sentence from the book that I hope your publishers made you put in because I, I read this is the only thing that really made me pop an eyebrow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, you you guys better be bringing your A game to the podcast. <laughs> okay, so uh, where is it? Um, 
the improved strength will bump up your FTP, which in turn means you can ride at a higher percentage of FTP for your Ironman or other distance events. So basically, like, you, you spend the chapter 14, page 145, like, the, that page basically says you get stronger, your FTP is going to go up. Like, in fairly certain terms. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, look... It- Probably written for a little bit more of a general audience than uh, than than than, <laughs> than your folks, um, and the idea is if you actually put some effort, uh, build a little bit more, um, you know, skeletal muscle, you should be stronger. Hopefully, hopefully, you're pushing more, you know, you're pushing more power to the pedal uh, as you do that. So, yeah, I mean, when you're dealing with the editors. Sometimes they're like, ah, we need this to be a stronger statement. And, you know, and I believe we even had that as like, a, you know, it should a more equivocal. And, and, you know, I think we might have had it. So that it was like, well, it yeah. should do this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, proper scientific writing. Yeah, it may. It might. And, and, it could. Right. And, 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 and that's what I'm used to, um, you know, for submitting something to it in terms of scientific manuscript. But, yeah, the. They want a little bit more, a little bit more gusto, and a little bit more, you know. <laughs> so, look, the, things get edited, uh, and and do we mean that? No, but I think uh, you know, and just kind of letting you know that, um, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, and this is part of the uh, part of the process of of writing the book too. Um, could we have pushed back? We could have um, at the same point in time. Is it something that is, is it, you know, does that hurt the book entirely? I don't know. You tell me. I don't. I don't. I don't necessarily think so. Yeah. But, um, but you know, it's maybe because I am as much of a nerd as I am that it actually made me think uh, very deeply about something, which is that way early in the podcast, um, uh, God, what was it like? Wallstock number nine or something like that. It was, I think it was like strength endurance and the size principle. What we looked at was a study on. Uh, strength training and um, and power output and VO2 max on the bike. And I think they did like a 20-minute time trial or something like that. Power output went up. VO2 max did not go up uh, after strength training. Um, and it was it was pretty much like you were talking about before, recruiting more motor units. And uh, – or that was my explanation anyway. Uh, it was not the explanation given in the paper, but <laughs> that was mine. Um and I'm sure you guys are familiar with the 20-minute FTP test that is still fairly ubiquitous uh, in terms of you know setting uh, bike training zones. And I think, and that's what it made me think of is you know, if, um, and a lot of other uh, training programs uh, uh, you know for competitive cyclists are like this, where they'll teach to the test, as it were, uh, where they'll give you like training that improves your anaerobic capacity, and so you can crush this FTP test that's actually well over FTP. Um, and that, that's what that made me think of. Um, and I was like, you know what? Technically, if you're going to define FTP as 95% of your 20-minute power, this might actually be right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny that you're mentioning that, that FTP because I was – I always remember um, – you, I know I've read your paper in the on Training Peaks or whatever your 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 blog on Training Peaks of, of your yeah. disdain. Believe, believe me, there's very little editing in that. Of, so if it's it was if it was bad, it was of your disdain for the uh, for the ramp tests and and the overestimation in, in in FTP for it. And you know I I agree with you. Is I find that it does overestimate, but. Um, 
Well, especially because you're, you, you know, you do strength training. I do strength training. Like I've, and even before I did strength training, I always had a really good anaerobic capacity just naturally. And, um, you know, it's funny. It's like, since I, I quit endurance training, uh, you know, or focusing on it really years ago in favor of track sprinting, like I have done so much weightlifting and so little endurance training and like my, I could I could tell you for a certainty, just weightlifting does not improve your FTP. <laughs> I could imagine it's very very bad these days. I could imagine, yeah. I mean, yeah. well, as we as we already talked about limiting factors, right? And this goes back to yeah. you know practice practice in your in your sport, right? So time in the saddle yeah. if you if you're looking to bump your FTP, uh, time in the weight room if you're looking to you know improve your squat. Yeah. Um, all right, so I have one more thing I want to ask you guys, which is about uh, core training and uh, and injury prevention. So, because uh, you you go into the go into it in the book, and it's not nearly anything that I could even pretend to be uh, even a you know dilettante in. And so, why don't you give folks some recommendations for what they can do in like a like twenty or thirty minutes um, to uh, to help you know stability on the bike to help prevent, uh, you know, kinetic leak, um, and to help, uh, injury prevention, you know, especially like shoulders and, um, you know, small stabilizing muscles and stuff like that. Cause everybody knows all the squat stuff. Like, you know, you do your big heavyweights first and all that kind of stuff's pretty, um, you know, we've, we've got it pretty well in the podcast and everyone else does too, but I think this is something that doesn't really get enough attention sometimes. Yeah. And this was, we, we felt that this was something that maybe, uh, set our book aside from some of the others that are out there as well. Um, and, you know, one of the concepts that we really wanted to introduce to everyone was the the idea of anti-rotation. And anti-rotation essentially just means the, um, the, the constant rotations that we're having between the trunk and the pelvis. And so by doing an anti-rotation exercise, um, that will actually help to stabilize all of the the um, the much smaller um, uh, muscles around the area, and so, for instance, we, things that are okay to continue to do. It's fine if people want to plank. It's fine if people want to still do uh, their crunches, but that's just not the way that the body's working. And so, we wanted it to be a little bit more uh, sport specific. And so since as we are, as we're riding, we're constantly having the, uh, the uh, pelvic drop and, and hip hike that, are con- that, would, uh, that would happen, um, and we're hoping to minimize that, right? And so we introduced a lot of anti-rotation exercises throughout, uh, throughout the book um, re- for whichever sport, whether it was the, the swim, the bike, or the run a lot of the exercises will help to recruit those smaller stabilizing muscles and almost prevent or uh, limit the amount of rotation. And when we do that, uh, we do create a, uh, a much stronger core. So rather than just doing these exercises that are multi-plane, uh, that are uniplanar, pardon me, um, such as a crunch that's only working us in the, uh, in the sagittal plane, a lot of these are resisting the rotations or some of the um, uh, or some of the mo- motion in the frontal plane, such as the uh, the hip hike and hip drop. So, um, Angie, you want to talk about some of the different exercises or? 
Sure. So we put a lot of our main anti-rotation exercise are ones where you're kind of battling to stay centered and not rotate, not going with the body natural urge to rotate towards or away from the, the anchor point of, say, a band or a plate or something we're dragging across our body or across the floor for the exact same reasons RJ said. Because you have to fight that resistance or you have to fight that rotational urge when you're on a bike, right, when you're in the saddle or on the seat. So we kind of put it together where every workout has an anti-rotation exercises in it, right? We give you about a dozen probably choices between them and some ways to prog- progress and regress each one depending on where you are in the program, right? And we really kind of hit hammer, we kind of hammered that point home because we think if you've been training for any length of time, you know your planks, you know your sit-ups, your crunches, your leg raises, stuff you're already probably doing, this anti-rotation piece might be something brand new and something a lot of even pretty experienced cyclists can probably get a lot out of. Right, so we might start with some super basic, you know, hold the plank, tap your shoulder, trying to rotate away from the hand that's planted, right? And then if we get good at that, we can progress that to a plate drag across the ground. If we get good at that, we can put a light resistance band on a rack and use that at to raise or lower our arm and kind of stay in that good neutral push-up position. We can do that movement standing, we can do it in a plank, in a push-up. There's a bunch of different ways we can do it that we outline in the book. Um, just the idea that that's probably the one thing that even people that are pretty experienced at training might be leaving out of the training, right? So we try to give you a bunch of choices, a bunch of options, and a bunch of different ways to fire those anti-rotation mechanisms in your body that hopefully transfer out onto the bike. Um, yeah. So, uh, so what would be your, like your top, uh, give me like a top three anti-rotation exercises. Cause I, you just mentioned the, the variation variations on the plank. So how would you do one of these? I'll go first. I think a great place to start if you haven't done much this kind of training, get that in a push-up position. Start with your or stance a little wider, right? So you got a little bit wider of a base before you go into with your feet together like a regular push-up. Uh, just keep your left hand planted on the ground, elbows fully extended. Take your right hand off the ground, tap your shoulder, put it back on the ground, slow and controlled. Repeat on the other side for the, the specified number of reps you want to do it. And keep on, even if you're great at doing push-ups, your first day doing this is probably not going to look like you're great at doing push-ups, right? So the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to lift your right hand up. Your whole body is going to naturally rotate to your left side, which is where the stable base is, right? Can we do that enough times and get good enough at it, strong enough, where we can stay in a push-up position and look like we're doing a push-up and just raise one hand, do a shoulder tap, and bring it back down? It's not going to be easy for everybody. It took even me a long time to master the exercise, right? And then when we get good at the shoulder tap, we can regress to a hip tap, to a forward reach, and some different ways you can resist those movements. But I think that's one you can do with zero equipment, zero resistance bands, and can be done you know, in your strength training workouts or after a run, kind of just locking your core and you know, fighting your urge to rotate yeah, to it that stable side of your body. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Most, most of this anti-rotation stuff is much harder than it looks and even makes pretty experienced lifters look foolish a lot of times, which can be funny to watch. But we did, and then once you get it, 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 it gets easier like any other exercise. But it's one you will, you'll see a difference in right away. Remind in any of those in any of those exercises is you're going to need less weight than you really think. Because, as you said, these are really challenging. And so if I'm going to do an around the world where I'm just, you know, standing in a, uh, in a shoulder width apart stance with a plate and then bringing that up and around my head and then back, it's, you know, a 45 pound plate is quite a bit. And the, and people need to remember that the goal is, is to really limit the amount of motion that you're actually having there. 
as you're doing it. Um, that exercise is fun. That exercise is a funny one because I think everyone always initially thinks, "Oh, this has got to be for my upper body," and it's like, "No, this is completely for your core here." Uh, as you're going to be bringing and uh, bringing this plate around your head uh, in in each way, um, as Angelo said. There, we've we've got all the different progressions and regressions in the book. You could definitely move from a uh, uh, a shoulder width part stance into uh, into a half kneel stance, and then and then do that. And that's probably that's one of my go to exercises. I have to say uh, at the gym. I'm going to give the listeners one quick heads up on this. I think will be valuable. If you could get a training partner or a coach to watch you do these at first and tell you how you're doing it, and if that's not possible, get your phone out, videotape a set, and then look at it back. Because even people with good kinesthetic awareness tend to struggle and think they look one way on these exercises and look a drastically different way. And you just can't tell, right? You say if you're doing it yourself, you can't really tell what you look like. But that second set of eyes or using the camera on your phone is a great place to start. And then maybe check out your form in between sets and look at, I have to drop this hip in this direction or whatever it might be. But it's really hard to tell yeah, if you're doing that right agree by with yourself. That. Uh, that's something that I, I always have my athletes do is like if they're doing squats or something like that, like when they start out every year, I'm like record the first couple sets in video and uh, uh, just send it to me. I'll, I'll watch them and I'll be able to give you cues. But, you know, get somebody there in person to help is, is preferable. Uh, and hopefully not somebody who's going to give you, you know, 300 cues between every rep. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> right. Pick the yeah, important exactly. ones yeah, and Try to move find forward. something that like, you know, gets the person to, to you know, to move the, everything else in the right way too. Um, it is definitely, definitely challenging to do that though. Um, and you guys also recommend the, the renegade row. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, <laughs> renegade row, let's go. It's, that's absolutely my, one of my favorite supplementary exercises. Uh, I for think cyclists. it's, a, it's a favorite for cyclists and, you know, as, and it's, it's funny with putting together a top 10 list and, and, and dealing with publishers, they're like, yeah, there's gotta be, you know, the top 10. I was like, well, there's probably a top 15 or a top 20, you know, if we were really doing this, but, um, yeah, we love that because it really does build, it causes you to really build a lot of stability, um, through the, through the side that you're actually not lifting. So, um, from the, uh, if I was lifting on uh, lifting the dumbbell up on my right side, really having to provide a lot of support on that um, uh, on that back side of the the left the left hand and the right foot. So that'll really yeah. create a lot of stability for me um, w- with that. And you know, one of the things that we discussed through the book as we were talking about the uh, the importance with. Um, with these, uh, a lot of our anti-rotation exercises is, you know, there's these, there's these X kinetic chains, uh, that, that crisscross through, through the, uh, pelvis and the trunk. And if we, if we fail to strengthen those full kinetic chains, uh, then we're not going to be able to provide as much stability through the core, uh, as we're trying to do. So, um, really great core exercise with, uh, I would say posterior kinetic chain, and then obviously you know you're getting the uh, the benefit for the um, the shoulders with the row. Yeah, um, I have I have one uh, kind of concluding thought here because um, um, 
I think you guys mentioned early in the book uh, somewhere about um, different exercise traditions, like uh, strength training traditions. Um, you know, basically like bodybuilding, uh, powerlifting, and uh, Olympic lifting, and how you know that kind of has a lot of influence on people. And then you know we can pick and choose the pieces of those traditions that we want. So um, just generally in terms of you know endurance training culture, like. Um, you know, how much of that kind of stuff do you still see going on as, um, you know, as people being like, oh, you got to do sets of like 15 to 20 or like, or even like overemphasizing certain exercises, like in different ways, like, oh yeah, you gotta, if you're doing leg press, you got to do it just like you're riding a bike, you know, you got to do <laughs> sets of 200. <laughs> so how much of that do you see? And, um, and you know, how much of that and how much of like what you guys are talking about do you think is changing where people go, Oh, there's actually something else, something else better we can do. Okay. I think in a, in a positive way, those three disciplines influence everything we do in the fitness industry in this respect, right? We're talking about, about cyclists specifically. If we're dealing with a client who is very thin, almost no muscle mass and needs to just get, get stronger and bigger, we're going to steal some bodybuilding principles to, to establish some muscle mass on that man or woman. Fair enough. At the same point, the idea that not not powerlifter level, but being good at a squat, some kind of bench press, and some kind of deadlift, I think is a great foundation for just about everybody. So we're going to steal from powerlifting for that, right? And as far as the power, uh, the power we develop in Olympic weightlifting, now let's be real. We don't need to be doing snatches and cleans from the floor and heavy push jerks with people that are riding a bike 100 miles at a time. But at some points in the year, can we pick and choose a couple of those movements, a couple of those exercises that, that, that stimulate the triple extension of the knee, the hip, and the, and the uh, ankle, the way a power cleaner snatch start of the platform would, and implement some of that? I think we can. So in a positive way, we could definitely use some of the principles of bodybuilding, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting while we're training endurance athletes, but obviously tweak them to fit the population we're dealing with, right? Um, as somebody who's been doing this since the mid-90s, back in the 90s, every weight room in the country had a record board and everybody was trying to be as strong as everybody else and everybody had to have max out their squat, clean, push jerk, whatever it was. And then I think in the 2000s, we kind of saw it go completely the other way of everything had to be quote-unquote functional, right? It didn't matter how much you could squat. It was more important to do a single leg squat on a half BOSU ball while holding a kettlebell overhead with one arm, right? I think where we are now, and I think we're in a better spot is we realize it's got to be someplace in the middle, right? We got to get good at the foundation exercises, establish good motor patterns and good central nervous system firing to do your basic stuff. The squat, the lunge, upper body push, upper body pull. And then let's, while we get strong at that, let's stay flexible, let's stay mobile and get good at the other stuff that we know is important as well, like our posture, our balance, our proprioception. So you got to kind of pick and choose. I think the biggest change is it went from everybody's got to lift super heavy all the time with the basic stuff to that's the old way, antiquated way of thinking. Let's do everything super quote unquote functional. And now I think we realize as a profession, the answer is probably somewhere What's in the, the middle. What's the weirdest functional exercise you've ever seen, both of you? I need to know. Don't don't I, name names because we all. I think we all know who we're thinking of. But just what is the exercise that's the oddest? Oh God. Uh. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go doing a uh, like trying to stand on a full physio ball 
and, and doing a squat and some kind of resistance across your shoulders. I've seen people attempt that before. Um, number one, it can end really bad, depending on how you land on the floor when you fall off of that. Um, and number two, I think I, I could kind of see why that might be valuable, but the implementation of it is just so dangerous, right? Could you do it on Eric's pad or a BOSU ball or something like that and get a similar effect? Yeah, um, and not end up in, and have a much lower chance of ending up in the emergency room than you do doing it on a full physio ball. RJ, what do you got? What's that? Okay, that's off the top you of know, my head. That's I, what I, I got. You're just so I guess dangerous. I, I guess I hang what out you, in gyms that, that, aren't, <laughs> that people aren't taking those <laughs> crazy risks because I would say I've seen something very similar but more on a BOSU ball. Um, and, you know, <clears> if the minute that you're doing single leg on a, on a BOSU ball and then trying to do an overhead press of some kind, yeah, it, it's, it's a little ridiculous. Um, not needed. <laughs> What, what, you, what, what were you thinking of when you asked the question? Because you, you look like you saw some crazy stuff. I God, I, I don't even know. Um, uh, the one that I always think of first uh, is a, uh, a track sprinter uh, who's he's got like he's got like two twenty five, and he's doing single leg squats on a Bosu. Um, yeah. and I was like, I get, I get it, but I, I, I only think I get it. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's the risk of injury. Jeez, uh, like that, that's just that's nuts. Yeah, I mean, because I think part of it is like it comes from people reading like scientific literature. Like you go to like Chris Beardsley site or something like that, and it's like, okay, how do we increase rate of force development? And like they'll show you know an untrained population if you challenge them with balance, like we'll increase RFD. Like, okay, great. Does it actually happen? Like like that does, does it apply to all situations or you know are people like over interpreting the scientific literature to some degree right and i think i think we always say we live in an amazing time with the amount of information that's available on ways to train for anybody right the stuff that's out there for it's, it's amazing more the time than any other time recorded human history but the bad part of that is people that don't understand the the context of how to implement these things are trying to implement them in ways they really shouldn't be, right? So, for example, what we're talking now, doing a squat on unstable surface probably has a value during certain times of year for certain people, but doing it loaded up with a bar with two forty fives on each side on a physio ball, there's a bunch of things to go wrong there. You're probably more way more risk than reward in that case, right? Um, and the question, what I always do with that strength and distance coaches, people come to me and say, I read this is what Saquon Barkley does every day to train to play for the New York Giants. I want to make my eight year old do the same workout for Pop Warner football. No, that is ridiculous. Your eight year old is not one of the greatest athletes on the planet. Plus, I'm pretty sure that 250, uh, 250 word article you read on Muscle and Fitness isn't exactly what Saquon Barkley is doing for the entire year. So maybe step back, research that a little more, ask some questions to professionals. Now, your, your kid can probably do some stuff to get better on the pop on football field, but it's probably not the way one of the best running backs in the game is training um, right now. All right, so do you guys have any, uh, any other uh, final thoughts before we close this out? No, man, I just want to say thanks for checking out the book. Thanks for reading it so thoroughly. I really appreciate that. Gave us a lot of good ideas to improve when we put the sequel out and hopefully 2023 or 2024. And uh, thanks for the questions, man. I really appreciate yeah, your time. So Keep much. up the great yes, work on the show. I, I was excited when, when you said, eh, 
I think I might have some differences uh, compared to what to, compared to what you guys are thinking. And I was like, oh, that's going to actually make for a, a more rich discussion uh, and make me think. And, and I like I like that. So uh, thank you for having us. This was this was fun. Yeah, sure. And your book made me uh, made me think quite a lot too, guys. Um, yeah, really appreciate you reaching out to me uh, and sending me the book. And um, I, it's gonna it's gonna live on my bookshelf. It's not one of the. It's not like the uh, the Lance training. Uh, the Lance Armstrong training book where I was like, oh yeah, this has to go into the fiction shelf instead. <laughs> well, you know, if hopefully, hopefully you, you use books the way that I do and, you know, I don't sit there and, and hang on, on a book for every little last detail. A lot of times I'm just like, what kind of a nugget did I take away from this? And so hopefully we gave you some nuggets to think about and, and, uh, incorporate with some of your athletes. Um, you know, certainly, you know, we've talked about some of the, the philosophical differences that we have and which is cool, but maybe, maybe you get something out of it, um, in terms of, Oh yeah, uh, I will definitely be reaching into there for the, uh, for the mobility stuff and the core stuff. Most definitely. Cool. Um, yeah, awesome for sure. All right. Thanks, guys. Awesome, All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so I want to thank Angelo and RJ for coming out to the podcast, for reaching out about the book. Uh, I really appreciate them sending me a copy. And uh, uh, like I said, it is going to be on my bookshelf. Uh, so if you would like to pick up a copy for yourself, we have the uh, Amazon link up in our show notes. And of course, if you just want to go to Amazon to finish uh, and find Finish Strong Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes from RJ Borgers and Angelo Gingerelli, you are welcome to do so. Um, and of course, uh, I am Coley Moore of Empirical Cycling. Thank you all for listening as always. And of course, um, you know, reach out to me empiricalcycling at gmail.com. If you have any coaching or consultation inquiries, we are always taking on clients. Don't forget we have uh, we have deal rates. We will negotiate with you for students and professional athletes in extenuating circumstances. We, we know that not everybody has a ton of money and we still want to give you high quality coaching. So we will do what we can. Uh, please reach out if you are wondering. So... Also, we've got show notes up on the website, empiricalcycling.com, and, uh, of course, on Instagram, at empiricalcycling. And um, thank you all for all of the kind reviews and all the five-star ratings everywhere and sharing the podcast. That really goes a long way. And we really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you in about two weeks.